0: welcome to the littler international employment law podcast series conversations for the multinational employer on issues impacting their global business hello everyone thanks for joining this podcast on how to conduct international internal investigations i'm don dowling i'm a shareholder at littler in our new york office and my practice area is advising multinational clients usually but not always US headquartered multinationals in employment issues that come up across borders overseas around their international operations. And today we're talking about a, a classic or quintessential topic about that, which is conducting an international investigation. I'm assuming that we're talking to the US headquarters of a US headquartered multinational that needs to investigate some allegation or suspicion of wrongdoing overseas Something going on outside the U.S. If we're inside the U.S., we'd be talking about doing internal domestic U.S. investigations, which is an important topic, but that's obviously the domestic counterpart of our topic today. It's a little bit of a roadmap for what we want to talk about today, I'm going to set the context of how international investigations come up to, again, to headquarters of a multinational organization based in the U.S. And then I'm going to talk about an approach for exporting the U.S. headquarters approach, the way we do investigations in America, to the overseas context. And I'll, I'll give some explanation there on, on why it makes sense to try to adapt a U.S. approach internationally as opposed to just doing a on when in Rome, do as the Romans do, local approach. However, in today's format, we don't have time to go into chapter and verse and get too deep into the weeds. I have gone into the weeds in a much longer form white paper or article that we call How to Conduct an International Internal Investigation, same topic as today's podcast, and that's available as a Littler article and there's a link to that as as part of the materials that brought you to this podcast. So if you want to do a deeper dive on anything we talk about, take a look at that article and I might mention that later because, again, there's just more there than we're going to be able to get to today. But otherwise today, again, I want to talk about the context for international investigations. And then give some examples, maybe four examples on exporting U.S. headquarters approaches to doing international investigations. And so the context for an international investigation is when the U.S. headquarters of a multinational company gets an allegation or suspicion of wrongdoing that arises in the international context. So let me let me break that down as far as what I mean by international context, what I mean by wrongdoing, and what I mean by an allegation or suspicion, right? By the international context, there's really three types of international investigations. One would be what we might call a foreign local investigation that's important enough that it's done by headquarters. In other words, let's say the company has an operation or an office or a factory or a facility or a store, whatever it is, in, let's say, Brazil or Argentina or... Japan or France or China or whatever country it is and somebody it comes in through the hotline or otherwise that somebody's embezzling there or somebody's committing harassment or there might be a bribery allegation arising let's say it's in Mexico or in Sri Lanka or, or uh, Colombia whatever country it is that would be a foreign local investigation one that It would be a purely local investigation if you left to the local office investigating. If you told the person in Columbia, hey, it's a Columbia problem, let the Columbia people investigate it, that's their problem. That would be a local investigation, an overseas local investigation. But a foreign local is foreign from the point of view of U.S. headquarters, where U.S. headquarters comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, this might be an FCPA situation here. We can't afford to just let the local office handle it. There might be conflicts. Maybe the local office has some incentives to sweep it under the rug. We're going to go in and look at it. Still though, it's a foreign local investigation because it's just one country. In in my example, Colombia or Brazil or whatever country it's arising in. Another example would be what I'm calling a multi-country problem, where something's arising across a bunch of countries, maybe in a region. Maybe there's somebody who's, there's a bribery allegation or something of somebody who's got regional responsibilities for Latin America or the Middle East, or there's a harassment situation where somebody in one country was on a business trip in another country, and the alleged harasser came from yet a different country. And so you've got several countries involved at the same time in an allegation. Or maybe it's a it's an antitrust thing, and, they, and there's a suspicion that there's price fixing going on across Latin America in your operations, something like that. That would be a multi country problem. Okay, and I'm using the word problem carefully because I'm distinguishing it from my third type of international context, and that's where there's already a charge in a court or an agency. Let's say it's an FCPA charge, and already the U.S. Justice Department's looking into it, or let's say it's an antitrust or competition problem, and already the European Union authorities are looking into it, and now you're backstopping and going back and doing an investigation about something that's already in court. That's a whole other situation. That's usually a even yet bigger situation, but I just wanted to break those three out because one point is that not all foreign or international investigations are any one of those. They fall into those three groups, foreign, local, multi-country problem, and multi-country or foreign agency or charge where it's actually in a foreign court. So those would be the international context of an international investigation. Next, I said we're looking into an allegation or suspicion of wrongdoing. What's wrongdoing? Well, that usually could be a, in a serious investigation, it's often going to be a violation of law. Could be local law. Let's say somebody's saying there's bribery going on in Jordan, okay, in your facility or office in Jordan. Could be Jordanian bribery law. Could be U.S. law that reaches extraterritorially in that case. Obviously, I pick bribery because we have the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So there's a U.S. federal law that prohibits bribing people in, in that example, Jordan. So that could be a legal issue, and you're looking into a violation of law. Also, it could be a violation of a company rule. You may have a global code of conduct and overseas you may have local work rules. In some countries like Japan and France, the law requires that you issue written sets of work rules. There might be work rules on harassment or bullying or guns in the workplace or you know embezzlement, accounting procedures, stuff like that. So the investigation would be looking into someone who says you've, somebody has violated a law or a company rule, including something in the code of conduct. If there's no rule on it, there's really not much to investigate. But let's take the example of someone who might have a conflict of interest and might be purchasing supplies from his brother-in-law, but you don't have a code of conduct with a well-drafted conflict of interest provision then you're going to be doing an investigation into something that's not wrong because the conflict of interest may not be illegal and it may not violate your code. That's a problem about not having the right rules in place but usually you're looking into an allegation or suspicion of wrongdoing which means an allegation or suspicion that somebody in some country is breaking the law or breaking a company rule including in the code of company. And lastly, I said an allegation or suspicion of wrongdoing, right? Sometimes we think of the whistleblower hotline is where those come from, and of course they may. You may get a call on your global whistleblower hotline that says, hey, somebody in France says someone else is committing bribery or embezzlement or harassment or something, and it came in through the hotline. But remember that not all allegations or suspicions of wrongdoing come in through the hotline, and in fact, well-drafted codes of conduct now talk about the hotline as an alternate channel, but it also says you can report to your supervisor or something. Sometimes the report percolates up through the chain of command. Other times, a report doesn't really come in as a report, but somebody uh, recognizes something might be going wrong and says, hey, you know, I'm not sure, but something might be happening, whatever. But any of those could be an allegation or suspicion of wrongdoing that gives in the international context. And one other context or contextual issue I wanna mention here is the size and scope issue. A lot of times when you hear people give lectures about international investigations, or when you read about international investigations in articles, The author or speaker seems, this is kind of a pet peeve or frustration of mine, the author or speaker seems to assume that all international investigations are big, you know, multi-million dollar venture company investigations into potentially catastrophic foreign corrupt practices act or insider trading or antitrust allegations. And of course, those are the biggest internal investigations and those are very important. Some of those can cost millions of dollars. There's at least one I'm thinking of that was reported in an SEC filing that cost $240 million to do a multi-country, multi-year investigation international investigation. Those are big, those are important, those can be bet the company, those can happen. That said, though, there's a spectrum of the size and scope of an internal investigation, and some of them are much smaller. I mean, you could go anywhere from, uh, someone might be alleging someone stealing petty cash or supplies out of the, the ladies room or the men's room, or maybe a fairly innocuous harassment claim about somebody who's using rough language in the lunchroom or something. All those could be things that might merit an investigation. If they're small enough, they might not get up to headquarters and they might not be an international investigation. They might be local, right? There might be an investigation into uh, uh, something that just gets handled locally overseas so it doesn't become an international investigation. But if even a relatively modest allegation makes its way to headquarters and headquarters investigates it, you could sometimes find yourself doing an international investigation into something that, if true, might lead to some discipline or dismissal of, of a person, but it's not gonna be one of these bet the company multimillion dollar investigations. My point is that we're talking about all those today and all those those investigations at any point on that spectrum of size and magnitude come up in real life. So remember that, that some of these international investigations can be much more modest in scope than the ones you sometimes hear about in, in discussions like this. Okay. So having essentially defined what we're talking about by by conducting an international internal investigation, the next issue becomes how to address investigatory practices when headquarters is involved in the investigation. And again, I'm talking about US headquarters of a US multinational company, although there'd be analogous issues for companies headquartered elsewhere. Now with many topics of human resources and even employment law compliance, a multinational can and does and maybe should take a local approach, a when in Rome approach. For example, if we were doing a podcast on complying with holiday and vacation laws or laws about maternity or paternity policy or overtime work hour laws, caps on hours, those are all examples I chose carefully, which are quintessentially local. You're not going to give the same holidays in the U.S. as you are in France. July 4th is a holiday in the U.S. July 14th is Bastille Day in France. You're not going to take a global approach to a holiday vacation policy, right, at least at the level of what the holiday and vacation benefit is. And again, maternity policy, overtime, work hours, even days off in the Arab world, Friday's the Sabbath, and the weekend might be Friday, Saturday, instead of Saturday, Sunday. You're going to take different approaches in different countries to different aspects of human resources. But the topic we're talking about today is conducting an international internal investigation, and we're assuming the context of a U.S. headquartered company, and I'm putting on the table, maybe this is something we could discuss and there'd be differences of opinion on, but in my view, a U.S. headquartered company is not usually going to be willing to take a local when in Rome approach to an internal investigation. Because in lots of countries around the world, local companies do internal investigations very differently from the US. In some Eastern European countries, for example, there's even criminal procedure laws that reign in a company doing an internal investigation because the local legal system sees internal investigations as a matter of police practices and not something for the company to be doing, at least in some contexts. In other countries, say in Latin America and the Arab world, local companies in local Latin American jurisdictions and Arab jurisdictions, might be a lot less likely to do a robust investigation. They might be much more likely to defer to the head of the office, the local boss, and if the boss doesn't want to do the investigation, they just let it ride. Now, I'm generalizing, and there's exceptions, and maybe some people could disagree, but I think in many local markets, there's going to be a less a robust approach to doing internal investigations. Maybe also in China, Japan, some of the Asian markets, there's going to be a local cultural attitude of not rocking the boat and causing problems. And in that context, there might be a lot of situations less likely to spark an internal investigation. But again, if we're talking about an American headquarter company, and the U.S. headquarters is hearing about the, um, the suspicion or allegation of wrongdoing, U.S. headquarters is probably not going to be willing to stand down and say, hey, maybe there's embezzlement going on in our office in Venezuela. Maybe there is uh, some tax fraud going on in our office in China. But in local Venezuelan and Chinese operations wouldn't necessarily do a, a full-court press investigation, so maybe we shouldn't do one either. No, normally the U.S. companies are going to say, no, 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 we got to go in and do uh, as thorough an investigation as we need to, I mean, for, for a number of reasons. One One is cultural and the compliance culture and the rule of law and all that stuff. Another is that some of these investigations, not all, but some are investigating issues that could affect the U.S. legal compliance like the FCPA for a foreign bribe or U.S. accounting if you're publicly traded, U.S. traded company, and there's, there's something that could affect your financial statements, et cetera. So usually U.S. headquarters is going to kind of pound the table and say, hey, if it's a serious allegation overseas, we can't afford to take a local approach to investigating, and we need to take a U.S. approach. But that said, there's foreign laws, there's foreign culture, there's a lot of foreign issues that go on overseas. And so what I'm suggesting here is that usually the best approach is for U.S. headquarters to adapt its investigatory practices to the local market, to basically start out with the U.S. approach, think through the internal investigation as how would we do this if we were in the U.S., but then adapt or tweak or change each step of the way as necessary, to the minimum amount necessary, When you're in the local country to comply with local law and local culture and local expectations and also to be effective locally. Some tools in our investigatory toolkit that are effective tools in the U.S. might not be as effective overseas and you might need to use a different tool in that regard. So I mentioned at the beginning that I have an article that's available to you that has a lot more content than we're going to be able to get through today and in that article I took There's different ways you could slice or dice this, right? But I took how a US company approaches internal investigations and I broke that down into four stages and 30 steps. Uh, Somebody else might make five stages and 28 steps or something, there's nothing magic about the precise way I slice and dice that. But the point is that you might think of how an American company does an investigation and break it down into its component steps and stages. And then take each one And think, okay, but if we're going overseas in another country, what do we have to do to adapt that? And, of course, the actual adaptations you're going to have to do will depend on the country and the context. There's no one magic answer, but I think there is, I guess I'm suggesting there is a strong approach we can take, which is to think of how the U.S. headquarters is going to want to do the investigation, if it could do it at the old-fashioned American style, the way we would do it in the States, but then make those adaptations. So, again, the article goes through all the different components of an investigation and talks about some of the issues that come up overseas. Take a look at that if you want to see it step by step, piece by piece. But let me just give a few examples just to kind of orient our ourselves in the direction I'm talking about here. So I'll give four examples of just components to an internal investigation that we believe in in the U.S. but that we need to modify overseas. One just random example might be the upshot warnings. Of course in the U.S. We give upjohn warnings when we're doing an investigatory interview and an internal investigation. Upjohn, of course, is a U.S. Supreme Court case, so it's important to follow it. And it makes sense, whether or not it came from the U.S. Supreme Court, it makes sense to sit down with the witness and tell them, hey, we, especially if you're a lawyer, are representing the company, not you, we don't have an obligation of confidentiality or attorney-client privilege to you, and anything you say may not necessarily be confidential, and don't rely on us in that way, and the rest of whatever would be in a set of Upjohn warnings. Now, overseas, Upjohn doesn't apply because it's a U.S. Supreme Court case. So if you're sitting down with someone and doing an investigatory interview in France or Brazil or Japan or some other country, there's no Supreme Court case that says that you have to do Upjohn warnings, but it makes good sense. It just clarifies the terms of what you're doing and it makes sense to tell the witness that the investigation is not going to be confidential and that you're not representing the witness if you're a lawyer. So you can adapt the uptown warnings overseas. The issue though is overseas you need to think bigger and think well okay even if uh, we can say globally it makes sense to give some modified version of uptown warnings in every country, is there any other stuff that we should be warning about in other countries warning a witness about at the beginning of an investigatory interview that we don't even think about in the U.S. And the answer is, I guess, unfortunately, yes, there is. A good lead example would be in the EU under GDPR. Under GDPR, of course, is the General Data Protection Regulation in the, in the European Union. And actually, I can give you the, the, the exact citation is Article 13 b Article 13 b be. It says that you have to tell data subjects. And in this context, an employee or other witness in an internal investigatory interviews and data subject, that they have a right to request access to data about them. So if you're taking interview notes, or if after the interview you're gonna type up a report, and some people argue the investigator shouldn't write down notes or type up a report because that can be disclosed later. But of course, if you're doing a complex set of interviews and you're doing a big investigation, it's gonna be hard not to take any notes or write any report. So to the extent that the interview is going to lead to a written document, normally a U.S. company would want to keep that written document confidential. But unfortunately, under GDPR, again, Article 13.2b, there's what we call the data subject access right. And not only do the data subjects, again, in this case, it's the, uh, the witnesses, not only do they have a right to get access to the notes about them, there, there might be some, you might be able to delay rights of access during the pendency of the investigation or otherwise, there might be issues around how and what you disclose, you would have to redact other people's names, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, any witness whom you interview in the EU will likely have a data subject access right to the um, interview notes or report at least the stuff in there about that person, right, about himself himself or herself. However, you not only have to allow them access if they request access to see those notes, you have to tell them that they have the right of access. That's what GDPR Article 13 says. So I'm raising this in the UpJohn context because in Europe, not only would you give UpJohn warnings or modification, but you need to think about how are you communicating to the witness that they have a data subject access request right. So that's just an, an issue that there's, there's something else beyond UpJohn warnings in these countries. Uh, another example, again, I said I'd give you four examples of things that we do in an investigation that you're going to need to tweak or modify or change in another country. Another is the common instruction that we tell at least an employee who's currently employed that they have to cooperate in the interview, right, or in the investigation. The investigator will often call in the witness to an interview or I guess some other discussion around the investigation, and if the person is still employed, an ex-employee is a different kettle of fish, right? But if the person still employed, the witness, you're going to say, hey, you have to cooperate in this investigation. Implicitly, what you're saying is if you don't cooperate, if you stonewall us or if you refuse to divulge information that you have or if you lie to us, you can get fired, okay? So we commonly tell people that they must cooperate in an investigation, and it says that in handbooks a lot. I just saw today a, a global handbook that was telling people they have to cooperate in an investigation. Well. Actually, as a statement of employment law, that's not true outside the U.S. It depends on the country and the context. But often, in many or most countries of the world, it's just not true that a rank-and-file employee must cooperate in an investigation. Now, maybe you can dismiss or discipline for good cause an employee in countries if they actively lie to you or tell you something not true or or if they fabricate information in an investigation. But in many countries, let's just take Germany. Let's say a German employee is a rank-and-file employee who's not the target of the investigation, but a witness. And they sit in that interview and they fold their arms and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm just not, I I don't want to participate in this. I'm not talking. What can you do to that person? Can you fire them? Can you discipline them? Under German employment law, not likely. It depends on the rank and then some other factors. But as a general matter of German employment law, no, you can't impose good cause discipline in, or do a good cause dismissal against a rank-and-file witness who merely refuses to cooperate in investigation. So if you tell a German employee at the beginning of, a, of an interview that they must cooperate in the investigation, you're actually giving them wrong legal advice, and you're effectively not being, perhaps, entirely truthful with them because you're telling them a statement of law that's that That's incorrect, and you're telling them not only not telling them their legal rights, you're telling them something that's not their legal right. And there's ramifications of that too, because you might decide to take a softer approach and do you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Interview style in a country where a rank-and-file witness doesn't necessarily have to cooperate with you. Another example, again, I'm just going through a few examples of things to think about to tweak in other countries when you're doing an investigation, is the issue of the dismissal clock. In most U.S.-style investigations, we think we'll do the investigation and then we'll decide whether we discipline an employee. You don't shoot first and ask questions later. That doesn't make any sense to us. Well, guess what, in other countries, you might have to. In some countries, including Belgium and Austria, and a uh, lesser extent, France, I'm just picking three examples. Under employment law, an employer must Discipline or fire someone for doing something wrong within a very short time clock. In Austria, you have to fire them immediately. In Belgium, you have three work days from when you learn of the information that they committed a bad act that's worthy of dismissal. And in France, it's a month. So a month is a lot longer than three days. Austria is immediate. Belgium is three days. France is a month. Now, obviously, the American company is going to say, well, until we're finished with our investigation, we don't know whether they did it or not, so the clock starts when we finish our investigation. That may work in some context, others though, you might get very strong, compelling evidence at the beginning of the investigation, and then you're just doing, uh, you crossing all your T's and dotting your I's and doing an investigation for a few weeks to follow it through and, and see who else might be involved or whatever, see if anybody covered it up, whatever. Well, under that scenario, when you're done with your investigation, you might not be able to fire the person. If it's Belgium, he's going to say, hey, you had three days. You knew for over three days that that I did this. At least you think I did it, and you think the information you had—you've had that for a week. You can't fire me anymore, and that's true under Belgian law. So the point being that you need to think through how you're conducting your investigation when you have one of these quick firing clocks, a quick dismissal clock under local law. The point is an American investigation team might not think of that until it's too late because they might not have even asked the question about whether there's one of these quick dismissal clocks in the country. So you need to think of that right up front from the beginning when you do your investigation. Let me give you one last example and then we'll wind up and that would be gathering documents. In the U.S., if you're doing an internal investigation, we've been talking a lot about the context of doing an investigatory interview of a witness, but another key element to an internal investigation, of course, is gathering the documents and looking at the emails and stuff like that. In the U.S., if you told employees that you own the company systems and that you reserve the right to look at their emails, you can then do your investigation and look at their emails without much concern about a tortious invasion of privacy claim. Under GDPR and other data protection laws, however, it's much more detailed. In fact, I don't have time to go into all the possible details here, although the point is just that even if you reserve the right to investigate and to look at company documents, including emails, in your handbooks and codes of conduct, you can't necessarily do that. Your purported reservation of that right is not as absolute as it would be in the US. In some countries like France, you have to go to the court and get a court officer to oversee your own looking at your own emails to see the employee's documents, etc. There was a case in China in 2013 where a company reviewed emails and even in China, which does not have GDPR or a similar data protection law, the Chinese court said, hey, you can't review, you can't read this employee's emails. And it threw out the discipline against the employee because the company had actually looked at his emails. Point being that you need to think through local law compliance before you dive in and start gathering documents, even though they're documents on your own system in your own files. So again, with that, thank you for for listening to the podcast. Uh, This was really just meant to give you kind of a flavor of the kinds of issues that come up, but the longer article that we have the link to goes through step-by-step in an internal investigation, something we didn't have time to do today. Take a look at that if you want more. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening in on our podcast today.